Hello, you are listening to Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, a weekly radio program that spotlights positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization throughout Philadelphia. I'm your host, Derek Hengemill. Jumpstart Philly is a unique community development program that trains, mentors, networks, and provides funding to aspiring real estate developers in seven different Philadelphia neighborhoods, including Germantown where the program was founded. Jumpstart believes that you can do well by doing good and focuses on removing neighborhood blight, scattered site rehab, creating a healthy mix of affordable and market rate housing, and avoiding gentrification through slow, steady growth and keeping wealth local. Interviews are conducted during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series on Monday nights at 7 p.m., held via Zoom webinar. For more information about these events, you can check out the events page at jumpstartgermantown.com. This week, I am speaking with architect Jeff Pastva about the implications of a multi-unit conversion and how to conduct a feasibility study. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and be sure to check out the podcast version of this program at jumpstartgermantown.com media. Jeffrey Pastva is an architect and certified passive house consultant with extensive experience designing housing, including affordable, student, and senior typologies for both single and multifamily projects and new and rehab projects. He has also served his community and profession via leadership roles in the American Institute of Architects, including as the current AIA Pennsylvania president and his neighborhood RCO. He holds a Bachelor of Architecture from Syracuse University and has been a licensed architect in PA since 2011. It's my pleasure to introduce Jeffrey Pastva. Good, thanks, Derek. And um, you know, a lot of the, the background I think we'll be talking about is more from from the design side, so you, you probably have a lot of um, people coming from the legal side and, and maybe the, the real estate development side, uh, maybe the contractor side on some of these webinars. So um, a lot of this is, is kind of on the front end design and, and also kind of getting into the details that it, we kind of hope to, if we have time at the end, talk more about how we actually might convert some of these things, uh, whether it's a single family to a multifamily, but also if we add uh, anything to it, such as like a, um, an energy retrofit, as part of it, or, you know, kind of what, how do you max out uh, units if you are, uh, you know, converting them? Great. Yeah. Awesome. And that's good to hear that you're going to give us that little uh, <clears throat> design side of things because you're right. We have had tons of, of legal related guests on who, who get into the nitty gritty of things, but kind of leave out the side of the creative aspect of things. Um, so, so it's great to hear that. And, and thanks for offering your information to us tonight. Um, so obviously the first thing I, I want to talk about is going to be zoning because any multi-unit conver conversion means you're changing it from a single family dwelling to something bigger or reverse, um, I'm sure, which is more unlikely, but, uh, I know we've covered zoning and sort of the ins and outs of it in, in other sessions, but I want to hear your take on it and maybe you can kind of lay out the, the basics of, of zoning and, and sort of what that means for a property and, and how it relates to your, your multi-unit conversion. Yeah, I mean, at the most basic level, I, I'm sure most people are aware that zoning is kind of the rules that you're allowed to do. You know, it, it, if you want to do something different than those rules, you have to, you know, ask for relief and go to the, you know, the variance process, which we might get to a little bit. But uh, by and large, it's it's what you're allowed to do, and if you stay within those bounds, you can. It's as simple as submitting, you know, an, an application to LNI, uh, and then having approving it probably pretty quickly if it's if it's a simple thing. The thing that, that, you know, well, every scenario is different. Um, specifically, if we're talking about taking, you know, a, an existing single family dwelling and converting it into two or three, probably no more than three or four units. But once you get to that, um, you're, the first step 
from a use standpoint is to just make sure that your zoning allows it. Um, most single family housing stock throughout the city and, and specifically um, Germantown, I think it's in the upper Northwest kind of area of the city is, is how the, the, um, the city defines it. Has a lot of single family zoning already. And so if you want to convert, you have to make sure, you know, your first, that's your first step. Make sure that you don't trip over your use. Um, so if you're looking, if you have an RSA 5 designation, which is one of the most common single family um, kind of uh, zoning uh, across the city, uh, you really need an RM1 to allow that. Um, otherwise, you're asking for a variance. Gotcha. So that's kind of your, your first step. So wait, so if you could repeat that real quick. An RM1 is some, so you... If you're going from a single family RSA five to RM one, you don't need a zoning variance. If if over the yeah, if over the course of the of the the history of the property, zoning can change, or or mm -hmm. someone could have built a single family house where multifamily use was allowed at one time. So yeah. uh, it goes, you know, you can do one way but not the other, right? If you if you have multifamily zoning, you're allowed to build a single family house on it, uh, but you can't do the other way. So there's a chance that what you've what you've acquired or if you're looking to acquire a property and you know you want to convert it from a single to a multifamily that looking for something that already has a multifamily zoning attached to it. RM1 just happens to be the most common throughout the city. There are other multifamily designations, RM1 through RM5. Um, and there's some RMX, which is a mixed use um, designation, which gets a little more challenging to submit. But you know, the biggest thing is just to make sure your zoning is correct that you have, you're allowed to make that, that use change. Uh, and then the other part of, of that feasibility, and I tend to do kind of a, a study kind of all the way throughout whenever I'm doing any project, but I would still also look at like, if you, if you are planning on doing any type of addition, mm -hmm. is there room that allows for your, your addition to be either taller or, you know, or out, you know, through the rear. Um, and some of that can be, you know, when you're looking at different lot configurations, knowing that you have room to grow because basically zoning will always allow a non-conforming use as long as you don't make it worse. Um, so even if you had, so let's say even, for example, from a use standpoint, if you had a, a duplex that's existing on single family zoning, you could maintain that duplex as long as you didn't change the use. Gotcha. Something to keep in mind. So what you're saying about like kind of gauging how much room you have to expand on a property, like the zoning variance doesn't necessarily need to be part of your rehab process, right? You could just have it in the back of your mind being, oh, like later down the line in five years, I could convert this to a, a, a duplex because um, there's the space, right? Yes. Cool. Um, so, so before we get, and I want to talk about the zoning variance process and what, what you can expect from it, but before we get into that, sell us on why we should be like considering a multi-unit conversion. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some obvious benefits that come to mind with people like profit and, and uh, sort of just like the, the um, opportunity that certain properties provide, but, but why should people be, be seeking to do something like this? What are the main benefits they'll see? I, to me, that's, that's probably the main driver. You know, if you're, if you're looking at this, you're, if you're a buy and hold developer, you're probably looking at, renting multifamily because you'll be able to, to maintain that and have a higher profit margin. I believe, you know, that's, that's not really my expertise about profit and loss, but my understanding is that most people that want to buy and hold, you have a, you have a better chance of, of getting more value out of your, out of that property. If you had 
three units. I mean, I j- just think about what you can get for one, two bedroom versus two, one bedrooms. I think generally the two, one bedrooms will actually generate more income right. than one, two. Effectively, you can charge a lower rent <clears throat> times and get more than you would if it was just like one standard rent, right? Yes. I, but then, the, you know, from, from an urbanistic standpoint, uh, you know, I also believe in more density. And, and if you're creating smaller units, uh, you know, you're creating more density and you can, you can create more affordability at some level too, right? So instead of having one person trying to, or, you know, a family trying to rent one single family home, you might be able to have two families rent in the same amount of footprint. Um, so if, if the city of Philadelphia and other cities across the kind of the country want to find ways to densify their cores, kind of whether you want to call it chopping up a unit or, you know, adding more density to the unit is, is the best way to, to, create more affordability. Um, it's kind of one of the bigger um, trends that I'm seeing in, in, in multifamily housing. Sure, yeah, that's great. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I didn't really think about um, <clears throat> about it from the investor's perspective, but from a, from a city development perspective, you know, I can see, certainly see how it's beneficial to, to kind of maximize the, the amount of people you can put in the spot um, rather than, than kind of pushing people out. <clears throat> so that's great. Um, okay, so now let's, let's get into some of the, the get into the weeds here a little bit and talk about the zoning variance process. Um, and this is something that you know we see a lot in, in applications that are submitted. You know, we, we shoot back right away. Is are you aware that if you want to move forward with this, you're going to need to do zoning variance? Um, and typically, as soon as they hear that, they think, "Oh, okay, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not, not going forward with mm-hmm, it." Mm-hmm. Maybe you can tell us a little bit like about what the process looks like to get a zoning variance. Is it as scary as it sounds? Um, you know, if it is done properly uh, or, or how can it be done properly? Um, you know, just, just tell me a little bit about your experience with it. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily scary. It just, it can be, it's time consuming. But like with any city agency, um, it kind of doesn't matter how big or small a project is. It still has to go through the same rigor uh, the same number of agencies and generally the larger projects, you know, might ask be, be asking for more variances. So something that's coming in for a hundred units, 300 units, uh, not only are they asking for more things, they're going to get more attention from the city. They're going to have more lawyers, you know, as par- maybe part of the team, making sure that they are getting in front of the, the right agencies at the right time where I've just found like smaller developers or, you know, maybe like, what I would picture maybe the, the, the typical developer through Jumpstown Germantown program, like maybe a, it's a mom and pop. It's a someone like someone just starting out. If you don't have the extra resources to have that team, you might kind of have to wait your turn. And so then kind of the nuts and bolts are, you know, you, you submit your proposal to LNI, you get your refusal, and then you have to either cure that refusal. or just say, let's, let's say that they come back and they find something that you, you didn't, you had an oversight on, uh, and you're just like, oh, well, I'll make that quick change. If you can make all those quick changes, you can send it back and you're fine. But most likely if you, you, you know, you're going for a variance, you know what you're in for the long haul, you're going to get your refusal. And then you have to go through two step process. One is, is to the RCO registered community organization. They have their own uh, process where they review any proposals that are going for a variance. Um, and depending on what you're asking for, um, whether you are specifically asking for a relief for one thing, anybody, once you open the door, can, can vote it down for any reason and they don't have to state the reason why. Um, 
So you could be going for multifamily housing and, and it's a neighborhood that says we only want, we only want single family owner occupied in this neighborhood. While they can't necessarily, you know, uh, object for that reason, like if they actually had to put that reason like in the court of law, it probably would fail. But in the, the kind of democratic process we have, anybody can vote for any reason. And you might have someone support or deny it from a near neighbor standpoint or from a community at large. Once you go through that, they will give you either a letter of opposition or a letter of support or a letter of, um, I think it's called like non, um, non-opposition, I think it's called, where they just say, there's not enough people in here to, to vote either way. It's kind of a tie. We're not going to oppose this, but we're not going to support it either. Uh, then you go to the, the zoning board, which is citywide. And ironically, in my neighborhood, just had this happen where uh, every single stakeholder voted against it and the process was still approved. So what happens at the ZBA is, is fairly independent from what happens at the neighborhood level. However, the ideal process is that you are working with neighbors uh, to address their concerns as much as possible. You get to the ZBA, you have a letter of support from your neighbors. Um, generally, if you have a letter of support, you will get approved at, zo- at the ZBA. Um, You're however, saying in that situation you were in, everybody voted no. Did you get a letter of support? In this, in this case, it wasn't my project. It just happened to be a project that I, I'd seen, but it was um, the, the near neighbors. So there's like a couple, again, a couple of stakeholders. Anybody who's live, who lives within, I think it's 500 feet of a property has like a certain standing. Uh, mm-hmm. They would say that like they have a, they have a higher level of, of vote. So if they were all to vote no for a project, generally that would then influence how the, the community votes mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this particular project, the near neighbors, the RCO zoning board, a separate RCO, um, all voted in, in opposition. Mm-hmm. And then the ZBA voted for it. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of these really random things that like it, you always think you're doing the right thing and you're working with neighbors. And in this case, neighbors didn't want it, but like I've seen it also go the other way where you've made changes to your project. The neighbor supported it. It went to the ZBA and then the ZBA denied it. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a crapshoot, but generally I have been seeing, I think on average, anybody who, who asked for a variance eventually gets it. It just might take some time. Right. So, so you just, you said this there that, um, you know, you, you feel like you're doing everything right. And then you might be surprised at the outcome. What, what sorts of things can you do to make, to, to be doing things right? I guess. I mean, I, I've heard like just getting to know neighbors and kind of talking with the right people and, and developing in a positive way. Um, what, what sorts of ways can people kind of prove themselves to the, the community that it's a good, uh, a valid project? I mean, you're, you're going to have more bargaining chips for larger projects. I think it's going to be harder if, you know, if, if you're taking specifically like you want to take one single family ho- home and just convert it to a, a triplex, there's just, a, there isn't a lot of give and take you can have. Um, what I've seen more and more for like the larger projects that come in um, as, as kind of like a community member, you know, I, I said when I was um, volunteering with my RCO, like I was seeing, I was reviewing projects come in before they went to the zoning board. And we would offer opinions about, you know, could you do this, that, and the other. So sometimes it could be a design thing. It could be, we promised to, to have better materials instead of just slapping on like a stucco box bag. Um, we promised to have, you know, parking. And you know, mm-hmm. we promised to have, uh, if, if it's mixed use, we promised to, to, to hire locally 
for the from the businesses that are going to come in. Uh, we promise to do affordable housing. We promise to, if we if we were asking to put you know a three story addition, we might say, well, we'll just do less. Mm-hmm. We won't we won't do as much. That's kind of like the the standard fare that will come in. That someone comes in has like an overreach, asks for all these things, and like the negotiation meets in the middle, mm-hmm. which is what the developer was going to probably do anyway. Right. Um, sure. <laughs> The, your relation or the developer's relationship with the RCO is kind of it, it's a two-way street, right? It's give and take because you're going <clears> to provide <throat> them information that will affect their neighborhood, but they can probably also give you some tips, right? About about like how to make your property, um, you know, valuable on that specific lot, right? I'd like to think that. I'd like to think that over the years, again, in my role as as kind of counseling developers coming into my neighborhood before they went to the ZBA or, you know, the, our, our zoning board, at, at, it was Sasna is, is the neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. south of south that we were, we thought we were actually making the project better, right? We, we were adding things about materiality form. And sometimes the formal changes that we would offer from a design side might actually get them more units, right? Because they would think about things that they didn't think about before. Or again, you, we, we would kind of, help them orient the site a little better, maybe where to put a, you know, a front door for retail because you know, we know the neighborhood just a little bit better where we think that like more people would activate the site and what areas might have more, more crime associated with it. How could that help not only you know, the neighborhood, but it would be kind of a help out the, uh, the developer and like, all right, well, I didn't, you know, they might not know certain, certain corners or certain areas were, were problems and that this, you know, doing this one little intervention might actually help both them from a, a safety standpoint going forward and the neighbors from getting more lighting or more eyes in the street. Cool. Cool. So let's move on because time's flying by here. Um, but <clears throat> your insight there and, and maybe we'll have you back later to talk more in depth about the variance process. Um, but, but let's move past that and, and let's consider somebody's acquired property that, um, you know, e- either fits the zoning that they want it to, uh, um, expand to, or, you know, the zoning variants to go through the process, you know, now it's time to hit the road and, and get construction going. What does that look like uh, for a multi-unit conversion? Like what work is going to be required? You know, what on top of, on top of just the normal, uh, you know, scope of work for a normal single family renovation, what are you also going to need to include in that? And, and I have some more questions following up after that, but maybe you can just get started um, with, with that. So, I mean, there's a lot of scenarios you can go through. You know, one, if, again, even from looking from a site selection standpoint, knowing um, which sites could be better candidates mm-hmm. for conversion. You know, we talk about a little bit like having a, like a wider lot. Um, I think the typical lot, if you look at like the, the average, I think it's like a 15 foot lot. Um, and then so you're then you end up getting less because if, if it's an existing building that already has your party walls on either side, you're probably looking at like 13, 13, five clear on the inside. So imagine if you want to convert that to a a multi-use, you either have to have a shared entry or each individual space has to have its own entry. And generally you want to have an entryway about five feet wide. You know, know, think about anytime you're coming in and out of the house, uh, you're moving furniture, you're doing anything that requires some sort of maneuverability you're going to want to have a little bit of width. You're going to have at least a three foot wide door. Um, so if you're going to have a separate entrance for that second unit or, or multiple units, you're going to think about how you, how do you carve out five feet? 
uh, out of a, of a space that's potentially only 13 feet wide to begin with. So even looking at, at, at lots, uh, something, anything that's a little bit wider than your typical width is, is generally will be favorable to that. Um, and then from the kind of the next thing, if you're looking at actually how do you construct this is think about what's, what's in the basement, what's in the existing basement as it is now. Um, there are a lot of, especially in West, I've, I've run into this a lot in West Philly, um, that there may be a basement, but it's only five feet deep. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have to think three feet plus out of this basement, um, both from how to, get, how to get the dirt out, how do you underpin your neighbors? Underpinning is a term about anytime you kind of dig out underneath deeper than your neighbor, it makes the, your neighbor unstable because basically the foundation's coming down. That building has been standing on earth that's been there for, you know, however many years. Once you start digging down lower, it, un it, it undermines their foundation. So you've probably heard a couple of these throughout the city where like buildings are collapsing because someone did an illegal building or um, a basement built, uh, kind of dig out. And it can be dangerous, uh, can cause property loss. It could, it, in some cases, it could have caused it could have caused death or harm. So think about, does it have an existing basement? If it does have an existing basement that generally is seven feet deep, clear, um, seven feet is, is, is your, your kind of dead minimum for, for code. You can get away with six, eight, but seven is really where you want to be. The next thing you want to look at, if you're going to do that and make it into a bedroom, you have to add an egress well. So an egress well uh, generally is going to be on the sidewalk. So kind of the next thing you want to look at from, from that kind of standpoint is that do you have a, a wide enough sidewalk that you could put in an egress well? Because um, that's a, a separate process that potentially requires a variance through streets. It's not through L&I. But if you were to, if you want to move forward with putting in an egress well in, in a place that is too thin or too narrow, um, you have to basically get a, a, a variance from streets, which is a much more opaque process than getting a variance from, uh, from L and I. The other option is, sorry, to put one in the rear. Um, the, so this is from, from a zoning and, and kind of lot standpoint, you have to consider, is there an egress, um, like an alley in the back? Not every sit, not every lot in Philadelphia has access to an egress alley. Uh, so if you, if you wanted to put your egress well in the rear, you have to have that alley back there or else um, zoning will, will actually deny you. And, and it, is an egress, something that's, an egress something that's only required by a multifamily home? Is that what you're, you're implying is that if you're doing a, a multifamily home, you need to have that in egress? Uh, well, it's, if you're building new now, you would want to have that egress alley also. But if you're, if you're converting and you want to use the basement in particular, okay, I see what you're saying. And you want to, you want to add You want to add that space as a bedroom because, because it's even because they have made, I think in, in previous versions of the code, they let you slide or you could probably make it a bedroom without making the egress well. But now if you're proposing a bedroom mm -hmm. in the basement, there L and I uh, will make you put an egress well in. Mm -hmm. So knowing where you can get away with one, is kind of an important part um, of your process and site selection.
Gotcha. So, so a, a multi-conversion or a multi-unit conversion could just look like a normal single-family home that has two bedrooms upstairs. You could put a third bedroom in the basement and make that your second unit, right? You could. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with architect Jeff Pasva about the implications of a multi-unit conversion and how to conduct a feasibility study. Thank you for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. I hope you're enjoying our discussion. Um, great. So, so thanks for that little jumpstart on the um, on the, the the process of it. But I, I want to back up a second and, and talk about the difference between you know multi-unit conversions for a buy and sell deal versus a buy and hold deal. Um, I think you hinted at it earlier that. Typically, if you're looking at a multi-unit conversion, you're going for the buy and hold because of that, um, you know, advantage you get on the amount of rent you're, or the amount of rents, plural, that you're, you're getting. Um, mm-hmm. But, but what, what differences in design and actual the construction process would you need to consider as far as um, doing a project as buy and sell versus buy and hold? So I guess that, you know, there, there's two parts to that. You know, one, if, it, if it's a buy and sell the whole thing, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be that much different than buying and holding it. Um, the big, cha- the big change that I see is if you, if you want to condoize and sell off individual units in mm-hmm. the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally don't have a lot of experience with that um, for, for a couple of reasons. One, it actually is there's more, <clears throat> there's more um, your, your cost premiums go up for, for architectural liability insurance when, mm-hmm. if you do condos because there's, there's actually a high propensity for, for lawsuits. What, what's the distinction that makes something a condo? Uh, that you actually want to sell it off, like sell off one individual. So if you make it a duplex and you sell off one unit, then it's a, it's a condomin- condominium. Gotcha. And is that something that you see in Philadelphia a lot or, or not really because of the reason you just gave? I personally have not seen as many condo sales. I think that, it, you know, if I have my history correct, there was a lot of condo sales pre 2008 recession. And I think, you know, once, once the kind of the market shifted over it, like everything came back. And it was almost exclusively single family homes and, and multi-unit rentals. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that condos don't exist, but I think that I, I haven't seen as many smaller condosizations. However, if you, if you wanted to pursue it um, from a design standpoint, you have to know that there, there's probably going to be some amount of common area mm-hmm. in your space. Uh, and you have to think about where, how utilities come in. Cause generally that's, that's the big headache you have to deal with. Like you're going to have some amount of common utilities, um, Potentially, like if you have like one one entrance for two units or three units or a common stair, as soon as you have three units, you're going to have to have a common stair. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no real way around that. If it's two units, you can get away with with each unit having its own entrance, potentially. I would actually, uh, you know, argue that you would, it'd be preferable to, to look for a corner property if you want to have like individual units, because then you could, it's easier to break up and, and find that other than having, again, kind of two two front doors on, you know, on a 13, 14 foot wide space. But if you did have that, you have to have a common area. And then if your utilities come in, especially on a multi-unit existing, like if you want to convert a multi-unit uh, existing to multi, you probably already have your utilities coming in one location. Mm-hmm. So you either have to find a way to get all those utilities up somewhere else within the unit, or you want to have your small kind of mech room with access, like at the front of the, the unit in the basement. Uh, or something like that, that uh, again, just to be considerate that both units would have to have access to that at some point. So how do you get people down um, to check their, 
their water meter in the future. Right. So, so now uh, maybe you can continue going in a little bit more depth about the conversion for a rental. Um, you know, let's assume there's no common space involved. So there's either two doors in front or, or a small area with no lighting or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in each unit, what sorts of things are you going to need to either duplicate from the single family home or, or maybe remove something? Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is bathrooms is you're probably going to need to add a bathroom. Um, if it's like a three bed, one bath and you're splitting that up. Um, so, so any other insight you can provide there? I mean, a kitchen's more likely. I mean, there's actually a potential that there already was a, a bathroom on each floor, maybe, or, you know, or multi-bathrooms, but you probably have to add in a bathroom. You're definitely going to have to add a, add a kitchen. Uh, one, like, technical thing, you're going to have to, you have to think about fire ratings. You know, mm-hmm. if it's a single-family house, especially if it's existing, every, you know, the only fire ratings you have to worry about are the ones between the, you know, the, the party walls. And they are, if they're a brick, they're already fire rated, but if you are adding it in, you're going to have to fire rate anything that is vertical or horizontal. So if you have that space that is common, you'll have to separate with a fire rating, you know, the common area from the, from the rest of the unit. And then like the floor ceiling, which it's not a complicated thing, but just, it's one of those things you have to think about. It's, it's not already in there. Right. So you have to add, add it in. And, you know, when you, anything that goes through the fire rating, has to be protected in a certain way. So that's kind of like the, um, the real, the trickiest part of, of that, of that conversion. Otherwise um, you have to think, you know, when you're laying it out, you have to kind of think about where the stairs are. That's really the biggest thing. How do you get up um, to the upper unit? And is it, is it a hallway that kind of comes from the street, maybe back to the middle of the, the, the footprint and then up. So you can have like a space in the front and a space in the rear on the ground floor. Or do you have your stair right in the middle? I mean, like right when you um, right when you enter the unit, uh, and that could be depending on uh, whether you, you're doing a total gut rehab, or if you want to try to use some of the existing infrastructure there. I mean, it, so it's possible that if the stair was already there in the middle of the space, uh, middle of the first floor, you could reuse that as long as you do the, the proper fire ratings. You could keep the stair where it is and use that stair to get up. Um, so some of that could be, you know, why you're doing site selection, but others one, you know, think about how, how much demo do you want to do to the space? Um, what does your budget allow to, 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 to demo this? Um, Cause that's again, the main thing. And, and if you, if possible, um, finding a way to stack, stack your, uh, your plumbing. Cause it's still, you still, you're still probably going to even, even if it's a, especially well, if it's condo, you probably want to have a separate lines. But if it's if it's a rental, you can have combined plumbing lines because there's only going to be one one line out to the sewer. Right. Cool. Cool. That's that's some great information. So thanks, Jeff. Um, so, so before we we move on, because I, I I think we'll finish up talking about uh, feasibility studies and, and sort of what you're getting into now, like like determining which properties are going to be way better or way easier uh, for for a conversion. Um, I just one one more thing from your design perspective. Like how similar or different should the units be from each other? Because I can imagine, um, you know, it's obvious, obviously easier from a creator's perspective to like make the same style kitchen, use the same style materials in both units. Um, how important is that really? And, and can you get away with having like one unit that maybe you put a lot more, you know, money into and a lot more care into the design and making it, you know, quote unquote luxury and then having one that is just that side piece that, that gains some extra revenue. Like, is that something that's feasible or, or you know, re- responsible? 
I, I think it's definitely feasible. I think particularly if you like, let's say you have a three story existing building. Um, a lot of times I've seen like the first floor and maybe the basement becomes one unit. <clears throat> and then the, the second and the third and becomes, you know, there's a chance that that could be a bigger unit. Maybe that's, maybe that's a two or a three bedroom where the ground floor is, is a one bedroom. I, the kitchens themselves might be the same, but you might have more space to play with on the upstairs units. Maybe it has a roof deck or maybe it has access to a rear porch. Um, so maybe you could say that that one has more design to play with. Maybe you can add some, you know, I won't say skylights, but maybe like you might be able to have more access to light and air because you could use the roof potentially for some sort of access or, or, or adding light um, access, light wells up there. Um, but I don't, think there, I don't think there's like a moral ethical responsibility to make both units the same exactly. Um, and even from a design standpoint, it's, it's, uh, if you're doing 100 units, then yeah, you want, it, you want kind of as much repetition as possible. But I think on a smaller scale, it's, it's okay. You know, it's not that much more effort to, to design each space as their own space um, and, and especially if you know that end user, you know, it's possible that if you're doing a multi-unit conversion, that one of the units is for you, right? So if, if you feel that one unit is for the owner occupant and one is for uh, a, a renter, then you might have a, a difference in, in whether it's level finishes or level of care that you give to one unit versus the other. Yeah. And going back to what you said earlier um, about, you know, sort of the, the, the affordability aspect of a multi-unit conversion where you're <clears throat> A subset of the property that is now available for rent that wasn't before um that kind of negates the, the ethical responsibility to to like make things standardized because any any um, rentable space is better than no rentable space right yeah the ethical in my opinion the ethical ethical part comes in more if like you're getting funding at some level mm-hmm. um so i've done a lot of work in, in low-income housing tax credits mm-hmm. uh and some of you might be familiar with the <clears throat> the, the mixed income housing bonus that's been around for, for a little over like what, two and a half years now. They specifically say that if you're going to provide, be providing affordable units within, you know, truly affordable units in your space, that they can't be of a less quality than others. So in that case, yes, like they should be the same uh, in both cases. But if there's no, no additional funding, uh, to me, I don't have a, a problem with having one that is, you know, of call it lesser quality or, or, you know, more of like a rental builder grade than, than something that is you're selling it. Cause it, it the market's going to dictate, like if, if you're, if you think you can get more rent by increasing um, the level of finish, then I think that's, that's going to be on, on your own performer to understand that. Yes, I, this is the market I'm selling to. We need to have this extra level in order to compete on the market. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I think that you're going to find it's kind of very similar. I don't think you, you probably won't end up having two units that are that different again, unless like one is for like someone special like yourself versus, versus just anybody, anybody who's running off the street. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so, so moving into to one of my last topics here, I just want to ask you about feasibility studies a little bit more in detail. Um, and this is kind of going, we're reversing way back to where we started and kind of like when you're searching for a property, mm-hmm. other than zoning, um, you know, what, you already mentioned some of them kind of about layout and width of a property. Maybe you can just repeat them and reiterate. I'm like, like what sorts of things should you be looking for um, that would qualify a property as feasible for a multi-unit conversion? Uh, this is like when you're looking to source properties. So don't, don't feel bad about repeating yourself because I'm sure we could all uh, appreciate hearing them again. Sure. I mean, I, so 
at, at the most basic level, like anything that's a corner property is going to be, it's probably going to be more expensive. And it, I don't think I have to tell a group of real estate investors that, that corner properties are, are more valuable, but they are definitely easier and have much more flexibility in a conversion from a single family to a multifamily. Uh, it, not for at least nothing that you, you can have multiple access points into that, into that building. And you can, you're not confined to just having, again, two front doors potentially on like a 15 foot wide lot. You know, you now have potentially like 45 feet of frontage or more on one side to be able to enter that. Um, but if you are looking for uh, an infill property, um, width is a factor, even, even depth, because the, the, the depth of your lot is going to determine one, potentially if you have to have any zoning variances, if you ever want to build an addition. Um, you have the room to grow, uh, but even if you even if you just want a backyard uh, to offer as an amenity, the more backyard space, um, people aren't really doing ADUs yet. I don't think ADUs are, are really a, accessory dwelling units are really a feasible thing yet as a standalone building in Philadelphia. But that's another thing to think about if you actually want to do a, you wanted to maintain the single family home, but build an accessory dwelling unit in the back. That's a conversation that's actually ramping up more and more. However, Philadelphia only allows them within the zoning code if they are within the confines of the existing building. Um, which, you know, I don't, I don't know too many people who are doing these, but it would basically be if, if you want to convert like the basement, somehow you, let, let's say you somehow were able to have access to that basement mm -hmm. independently, you could make that as a separate unit as an accessory dwelling unit, because they have different, you know, the different requirements about what an ADU is for in terms of like, um, you know, size of the unit and access. But that's kind of like a little further conversation. But if you were thinking other types of, of multifamily conversions, like that is one thing to think about. Um, height is another one. Like, you know, are you on, are you on a two-story block? Because um, then generally that means you probably have the chance to, to add a third story. Um, you may run into a, a variance here. Um, if you're not familiar, if you're, if you're on an RSA five lot, which is your kind of your classic single family zoning. Uh, if you add a third story, when you have any of a two story on either side of you, that third story has to be set back eight feet or you have to get a variance. So um, the feasibility of putting on a third story with an eight foot setback without going for a variance doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. um, so the other feasibility just kind of again thinking about like is there is there an egress alley in the back so this is part of like if you're if you get a site survey um, that's where you'll find that out like you can use atlas to find out some basic stuff but i always try to confirm and always ask for a survey um, to make sure that like what we you know even if you have a deed the deed doesn't always have the right information on it so yeah, and that's something we, we mentioned in a lot of jumping ours is, is kind of just how to use Atlas and, and what a great source of information uh, that is. But mm -hmm. you got to verify and double check because even on a system as perfect as Atlas, you know, I'm sure there can be some, some snafus as far as yeah. like expectations versus the reality. Um, great. So, so thanks so much for going into feasibility studies. And, uh, and the last thing I want to ask you about tonight is something that you, you mentioned as a point of interest um, in our practice session leading up to this, but I think it's a, a great place to, to um, talk about this because it's kind of in the same <clears throat> in the same realm as, as multi-unit conversions. I mean, it was what you called energy retrofits and something that, you know, you've seen becoming more popular and more feasible 
Um, so what is an energy retrofit and, and how can you convert a property into passive housing as, as, or, or something that's using less energy and doing less harm to the environment than it was before? So uh, the, the main, there's two main things you have to think about with that. One is going to be the, the amount of insulation you have to add. Uh, if, you, if you're taking an existing brick row home in particular, there's a good chance that there's no insulation value to it. Like if you can see exposed brick somewhere in that property, there's no insulation, um, most likely. So one thing you have to think about, and this kind of comes into a little bit of the feasibility and that how much space you have left over is that all your insulation most likely is gonna to have to come on the inside face of the brick. Um, and if you're gonna do passive house level of insulation, you might need to have like eight to 12 inches of, of insulation there. So if that is something you, you know, that is, uh, would like to pursue, that is like an area to know that you're gonna to have to kind of build in from whatever you have, mm -hmm. call it eight to 12 inches on either side to get your insulation value. Uh, and then the, the other big thing you have to consider is your air tightness. Uh, so air tightness is something that people are starting to understand a little bit more. Uh, the, the kind of rule of thumb right now is that if uh, you take any housing stock, existing housing stock in Philadelphia, uh, it probably has what's called an air change per hour of about 10 to 12, which means that the volume of ins inside to outside air is constantly exchanging in housing. Like basically when you run your mechanical systems, it depressurizes to push air out through the vents. It has to suck air in from somewhere else. And in older housing, that air that gets sucked in is coming through just gaps and cracks in the walls. So because you're doing that, that basically it's saying that every hour, the entire volume of your, of the inside air is being exchanged with outside air 10 to 12 times. Mm -hmm. Passive house, you want that number to be down to what's called 0.6. So about, you know, 20 times uh, more efficient than what currently has, because if you control the amount of airflow, you're controlling the amount of moisture and humidity that comes into the house. Uh, you're controlling, you know, whether the, it's heat or cold that's coming into the house. Um, and you do that through what's called an energy uh, recovery ventilator or an ERV. Uh, it's kind of like a... a Think of like a vacuum cleaner. If there's one, if there's one area where all the air is coming in and it's controlled and you force everything there, you can filter it. So that not only are you filtering the, the pollutants out of the air when it's coming in, um, you can actually exchange and have the, the cold air and the warm air go past each other. And so whatever temperature you want your comfort level to be on the inside, it pre-tempers the air. So you have to use less energy to heat or cool it to get to your temperature. So those are like the two big things. So, you know, so you have to make an air, you have to make it more airtight, which generally means you have to do a lot of air sealing with a liquid applied membrane uh, if you're doing a retrofit. So it's, you're putting a liquid applied membrane on the brick, you're adding a lot of insulation, and then you're adding your, your ERV to control where air is coming in and out of the building. Um, that would happen for, for whether it's a single family or multifamily. Um, for multifamily, you'd have to consider that you, you know, you have to do that for both units. Um, the air sealing is gonna be kind of the same thing, whether it's one or, or multi, uh, you'd have to have two ERVs. Um, and the insulation would kind of be the same, but you don't, have to in, you don't have to insulate between the units, you just have to insulate from the, from the outside. 
So, cool. and the reason we're talking about this in the context of a, a unit conversion is because you're already doing all this significant work on the property. Might as well, you know, we're going back to the ethical and moral <laughs> reasons. Is you might as well make this other addition that is going to help out, um, you know, in the same reign as affordability and, and all that sort of thing, um, all that sort of stuff. So, so yeah. A anything else to add about any energy retrofits, or are we good to, to move into the Q and A here? I mean, those, I mean, they, they are, they are a challenge. I'm not going to say that they are not an easy thing. To, they're not an easy thing to do, but I think if you, what I believe is more, not even from like the, the operational carbon use in, in the future, but I think that more, more consumers, I believe will start demanding this mm -hmm. and because they will be able to see that their energy bills, if you do it right, could be potentially like 10 bucks a month. Like they're the, that's the goal is to get down to the point where you have so little energy use Overall, no matter how much you use, you know, you could give or take, um, you, you're finding a way to, to make it more affordable to operate your house for the next 30 years. Yeah, great. And, and going back to, you know, the, what are the benefits of a multi-unit conversion? You're able to do an energy retrofit, which will in turn you know, make your property more marketable to a, a, a segment of the population and something, make it a little bit more appealing to, to, to customers. So, and, and what, sorry, one, one more quick, that actually it, it helps that an, a, an energy retrofit of a multi-unit um, is actually more beneficial. Well, it's easier to, to accomplish than a single family uh, because of the, this, this concept that the more people you have living within the shell, um, the easier it is to actually attain that, that number because you're more people in there in the, in the, in the winter, we are putting off heat. So we actually, like the more people that are in a space, the less you have to heat your space uh, and we are in a cooling environment. So um, when you size your equipment, uh, you're sizing it to take the, the worst winter, not the worst summer. And that concludes my conversation with architect Jeff Pastva about the implications of a multi-unit conversion and how to conduct a feasibility study. Next week, I will be speaking with returning guest Ugo Opera about how to manage your renovation and not get burned. The interviews on this program are recorded during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series, which takes place via Zoom webinar every Monday night at 7 p.m. If you'd like to participate in the live Q&A with our guest, be sure to head to jumpstartgermantown.com events and register for next week's Jumpinar. And if you're interested in starting a Jumpstart program in your own community, you can visit gojumpstart.org and see our how-to guide and open source training workbook. Thank you so much for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. And be sure to tune in next week.